when we've been there 10,000 years. I can't even comprehend that. But to think that we'll be with you all that time, and we've just begun. And we're only there by your grace, which is indeed an amazing grace. And what we know of, in part, your goodness, we will know in its fullness. And we look forward to that. And so, Lord, please speak through me. I am your vessel to glorify you, your Son, and your Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. There's a serious feedback up here. Can you hear it? Okay. As long as you can hear it. Keep you awake, right? <laughs> Amen. Can I move or not? If I were to move over here, is it going to go off worse or not? Okay. Well, you may recall, because I've shared stories from this a couple of times, but in the summer of 1990, I was in Ocean City, New Jersey, on a summer project with Campus Crusade for the entire summer. And um, the schedule was pretty intense. I was up at 6 in the morning. You'd go to 10 at night. We had all these meetings and evangelism and all that stuff. It was a, a good summer. It was a, a grinding summer and a grueling summer, um, but a good summer of spiritual growth. But about halfway through that summer, <laughs> I was wanting to go home, and about half the people there wanted to go home because it made sense because half the people there were, were somewhat introverted and the other half were extroverts. And if you're with 95 other college students in this huge house, you can't get alone to re-energize, right? And so I was ready to, to go home. I'd, I could not wait to, to get out of there. And um, the last week I was there, I, I took a week off work to help recover. And then when my parents pulled into town, um, they got in late at night. I got up early that morning, and I was so ready to get out of there and go home. Got dressed and showered and literally walked to their apartment and knocked on the door and kind of woke them up. Like, let's go home, okay? I was glad to see them, but I was ready to go home. There's just something about home, right? Being at home. Don and Carol went on vacation, I think, for three weeks, right, to Australia and New Zealand, and about, what, halfway or two weeks into it, you, what did you want to do? Go home, because you can get tired of even vacationing, okay? I think that this goes even to the animal world. I will never forget uh, our dog, Cross. He, um, um, I didn't know at the time we moved here that this is almost like the mold capital of the United States. And for dogs, particularly hairy dogs, you can get these allergies. And so he was new to us, and he was just constantly scratching and biting and licking himself. And he uh, licked his groin area into, uh, and his testicles into, they just inflamed him. So he had to get those taken out. And so, um, so he went in for that surgery, but he also had developed all these cysts throughout his, his, his body or skin. And so we did the surgery to take care of all that. Well, when we brought him home, it didn't take long for the stitches to come loose. So he had to go back in again. Now, this is a, a um, we have two German shepherds now. Cross is the protector. He hears anything. He is barking. Okay. 
The other dog, Brutus, he's a lover. He, he, he does not protect. He just will cuddle with you and lick you and everything. So Cross, as he's gotten older, as we tend to do, he can get a little cantankerous. And so he had had a couple experiences at the vet that he didn't like. And I will never forget going in to pick him up after that second surgery. Now, he had gotten so used to being there that they just put him in a cage with the door open and he was walking around with them. But when I walked in to bring him home, he immediately got out of his cage, came to me. I put the collar on him and he was pulling me out of that place and got into a, you know, our, our car, whatever we had, and he got home. He was so happy, and he could finally just, you know, relax and, and everything, okay? So he, he wanted to go home. He'd had enough of that place. He was ready to go home. And so there's something about us and who we, you know, are as people that were made to, to go home. I remember when uh, the last few years of my parents' uh, you know, time here on, on earth, not so much for my dad because he was physically healthy. He never had cancer or anything like that. He began having these series of mini strokes that affected his desire to eat and the dementia, and eventually that was what was the cause of his death. My mom was the opposite. Her body was breaking down, but her mind was there. And so as I was talking to her, she was dealing with you know, the Parkinson's and couldn't walk anymore and struggled to swallow and all those things. Um, I just told her because I could communicate to her that, you know, you need to prepare to go home. You're going to go home. You're going to go, meaning you're going to go to heaven. And that's really what we're made for because our home is not this world, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. The Apostle Paul prayed that he would, he was torn. He wanted to stay and minister to the Philippians, but it was better if he depart and go and be with Christ, to go home. Our home is heaven. And this is why, and we've been talking about this in the, our Sunday school class on heaven, that the Apostle Paul reminds us, and I put, bunch of, put all the verses up here. I did something different this morning. But this is what we're to be doing. This is your home temporary right now. We are aliens and strangers. Our real home is heaven, okay? And we are to set our minds on the things above. And the things above here he's referring to is heaven. That's where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So we're not to think of the things of this earth, but the things of heaven. And that is hard to do because we are in this world and it pulls and demands our attention, and our focus. But this is where our mind should be in the things above. John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress of a conversation between two pilgrims who are on their way to the celestial city. And the celestial city, of course, is heaven. And one of the two pilgrims says to the other, when do you find yourself in the most wholesome and most vigorous spiritual state? The other pilgrim replies, when I think of the place to which I am going. You want to be most alive spiritually? Think of where you are going. John Bunyan understood that heaven on your mind changes your life. 
Now we've come to the point in our study, what the Bible says about the end times, where theologians generally agree in what is called the eternal state. But please allow me to give you a brief reminder, just so we know it's been a while, because we left off weeks ago since we last took a serious look at this. And so we talked about what is called the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And last time we learned that the appearance of the great white throne, earth and heaven fled away. Now the phrase fled away, in other phrases in the Bible used to describe this event, such as fled away or pass away or vanish like smoke or perish, most likely mean that the current heaven and earth will be completely destroyed. And the science of physics also tells us that time and space are properties of matter. Since time and space have now ended, because we're in the eternal state, matter has ended, and you cannot have matter without time and space. And so what God created in Genesis 1-1, what was that? In the beginning, that's time, God created heaven, which is what? Space and earth, which is matter. He now uncreates at the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, the dead, great and small, are judged from the things which were written in the books that were opened according to their deeds. And we see that in verses, verse 12 there. Now after this judgment, and just picture this in your mind, all the sinners of all the ages, including demons and men, including Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist, all, everything that's sinful, all sinners, they're now in their eternal state, eternal lake of fire, away from the presence of God and the redeemed saints and the holy angels forever. They've been dismissed into their own disconnected, isolated place of eternal punishment. They have gotten what they've asked for. They wanted to live life apart from God, and he has given it to them. He has answered their prayer. But what happens, here's the question, after the great white throne judgment? And before I can answer that, I need to lay some foundational theology regarding heaven. Okay, this is going to be pretty simple. Okay, but the word heaven, or truly heavens, okay, here's one of the verses we'll look at. It refers to different realms. This is strictly from the Bible. The heavens, it's plural, or what we call the first heaven, the Bible does, refer to the sky and the earth's atmosphere. You can see that in Deuteronomy 11.11. 11. Where does the rain come from? The sky above and clouds. That's the rain, the Bible says, of heaven. Okay? We think of that as the first heaven. But the heavens can also refer to outer space, right? Where stars and plants reside. This is what we call the second heaven, or could be considered the second heaven, because I want you again, notice the use of the word heavens here. Mean what? There's more than one. Okay? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. So there is a heaven and a sky above. There's obviously another heaven above that space. Okay? But what we, what we think of heaven, it refers to God's dwelling place, a place known as 
the third heaven or paradise. This is what the Apostle Paul experienced. I know a man in Christ, he's speaking about himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was cut up to the, the third heaven. So now we believe that there is a third heaven where God dwells. There is a second heaven, stars and planets and so on. And then there's the first heaven, just the atmosphere above us. And I know of such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Now watch, was caught up to where? So that paradise is referring to the third heaven, which is what Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise to that man next to him, okay? And he heard inexpressible words. Now, the third heaven is where your spirit goes when you die. To paradise, to the third heaven, to the presence of God. It's also called the present heaven or the intermediate heaven. It's the intermediate heaven is also called the intermediate state. Um, in his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn, uh, I think rightly so, says this, that by definition, an intermediate state is what? Temporary, exactly. Life in the heaven we go to when we die, where we'll dwell prior to our bodily resurrection, is better by far than living here on earth under the curse away from the direct presence of God. That's Philippians 1.23. Still, the intermediate heaven is not our final destination, okay? God's children are destined for life as resurrected beings on a new earth, okay? That's what we call the new heaven and the new earth. So after the great white throne judgment, we're reintroduced to a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I say reintroduced to a new heaven and new earth because it was first spoken of in the Old Testament. Did you know that? See, it's right here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So there always was going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Of course, it's written like this in the New Testament, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, Paul describes what is happening at the great white throne judgment and the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth in this way. It's described this way. This is what God is doing now at the great white throne judgment or just after it, okay? He is summing up all things in Christ. The fullness of time has come. And what is he summing up? Things in the what? Heavens in the things on the earth. This has been the plan of God. Now, let's take a few moments and talk about the new heaven and the new earth. Here we go again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And the first point I want to make about the new heaven and the new earth is that is, and this is really the key here, it's a very different kind of existence than we know now. Okay? How do I know? Well, look at the end of verse 1. There is no longer any sea. Our existence, our experience of life has, has been and has only been, all of humanity, a water-based existence. 
Think about that for a moment. We all know that three quarters of the Earth's surface is covered with what? Water. Did you know that you are mostly water? Your blood is 90% water, and your flesh is 65%, guess what? Water, exactly. Because of that, we basically live in a watery world. And there's only water in the oceans, but there's water where? Beneath the earth in underground, underground reservoirs, springs of water, right? Plants are what? Mostly water. Animals are mostly water. And the earth is the only place in the known universe where there's enough water to sustain man, plants, and animals. So when John writes that there's no longer any sea, I think he's implying that the new heaven and the new earth are not a water-based environment. Let's take this thought even further. Man's current existence is so water-based that he dies if he gets dehydrated, if he's without water. But in the new heaven and the new earth, I don't think there's evaporation, distillation, condensation, there will be new climate conditions since there will be no more water cycle, right? What's the water cycle? You have clouds above, rain falls to the ground, and that rain goes where? Well, it goes in lakes and oceans and other water reservoirs, and then also it evaporates up into the clouds, which create the condensation and the rain and all that. If there's no water, if there's no sea, you get the point, right? If I'm interpreting this correctly. And so, whatever we are in our glorified form is not going to depend on a process that demands consumption of water. As far as what the Bible tells us, the new heaven and the new earth won't have any oceans or seas, or lakes, or streams. There's no water. The only water that is mentioned is this, right here. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, I don't believe this is the kind of water that we know. A chemical called what? H2O. But it's something entirely different. It's so different that what's it called? The water of of life, okay? So that's how I'm interpreting it. I could be wrong, but so we believe that there's no water and no sea, so life is going to be completely different than anything we could even understand on this earth in its glorified form in the eternal state. But the most important thing that will be different isn't whether, there, whether there's water or not, will be our experience of God. And this is a wonderful truth to meditate upon because God dwells among men. Remember this? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And we can skip over that, and it would be a great injustice to do that. 
So I said, here's a reminder. This is a drawing, remember this? Of a tabernacle. And it was carried around by the Israelites as they wandered in the desert. And it housed the presence of God. Now, where was the presence of God in this? Okay, they, you see this, these poles here? They would carry these things around. This would all break down, this tent and so on. All this would be carried. And you can see these are other tents of the tribes. And of course, there's a holy place, and then there's the holy of holies behind this curtain here. And this is what we call what? That's the ark. Okay, now in the ark it contained what? Manna, tank, two tablets. Yeah. Okay, but that was symbolized, symbolized what? The presence of God. Okay? That was the presence of God for the people. And of course, as they were wandering the desert by day, what guided them? Who guided them? Well, God did in the form of a cloud, and at night there was fire. Okay? Now, the ark and all the other parts of worship were eventually moved to Solomon's temple. And here's a picture or drawing of Solomon's temple. So God's presence went from the tabernacle to the temple. And you can see now how lavish this is because inside here it's, it's lined with what? Gold. And behind all this, of course, here is the Ark of the Covenant and so on and all of that. Okay? Again, but where was God's presence? It was there. You had to travel to go to be in the presence of God. Okay? Now, the problem was only that the high priest once a year was allowed into the Holy of Holies to house the ark. And that's where God resided. Because of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, no man could ever be near or see him. The only way for man to be in God's presence in and see him was to be as holy as God. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. His death on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. God transferred Jesus' righteousness and his holiness to our account so we can once again be with him. And now, since the cross, where is God? Is he in that building? Is he in that, those, that tent? No. He now lives where? inside, within us, okay? Now, Paul describes our current experience of God this way with the anticipation of a very different experience in the future new heaven and new earth. Remember this? This is us right now, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Okay? We know ourselves dimly. We know God dimly. It's, there's a, a veil, if you want to call it that. Okay, it's not a clear mirror, Okay? But there is coming a time when we will what? See him face to face. And this is exactly what John writes. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. This is talking about Jerusalem, the holy city that comes down from heaven. And his bondservants will serve him. They will what? See his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. God will dwell among men. But that, folks, is no small feat at all. Because God said to Moses, you remember this? Ron, you referenced this this morning. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Paul wrote this about God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no man has seen or can see. Now, my question is this. If, if God lives within us, right, did God live within Moses? Yeah, he did. But why couldn't Moses see his face? He was as holy and as righteous as God was, right? But why do we, we still say that we, we, we can't see his face and live? Because that's the promise that we have. The pure in heart shall see God. Jesus promised one day we will see God. But until then, all we can see is a veiled glimpse. Like Moses, who saw the glory of God veiled in Exodus 33. Like those who actually saw, were alive, and saw with their own eyes Jesus Christ at his first coming. God veiled in human flesh. And like the apostles on the mount who saw the transfigured Christ. And they were able to behold something of his glory. But let's take a look at that verse for a moment because it's a key to understanding why we can't see God and live. It says that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Now they were able to see this, okay? But what we immediately see is that when they saw Jesus unveiled, what did they see? Well, they saw two things. The first thing they saw was fire. What do you mean? What well, says his face shone like the, what is the sun? A great big ball of fire, okay? Then they saw light, a bright cloud of light. Now, this is consistent with other scriptures, okay? Did I put those up there? I forgot to put those up there. Just listen to these verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. You want to write that down because you understand what I'm going to say next here. Okay. God, the scriptures say, clothes himself with light as if it were a cloak. Now, why does God clothe himself with light? Because God, who is spirit and is invisible, wears light to be visible. He can only be seen when he covers his invisible essence with light. But it is not only light, but fire, as you can see here. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. This is talking about when Moses was up in the mountain with God. And the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called, Mos called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like what? A consuming fire on the mountaintop. And we're reminded in the New Testament that, that God is what? He is a consuming fire. So whenever anyone has seen God, whether it was on Mount Sinai or whether it was on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw what? Light, brilliant, shining, blazing, fiery light. And that is why when we think of God as shining glory, because that is in fact how he has revealed himself. Now, what does it have to do with a righteous and holy child of God 
not being able to see God face to face and live? Go to answer that. Of all things, I'm going to turn to Hollywood. I woke you up there, didn't I? And the recent movie coming out, I think, on Peacock on February 16th, Oppenheimer. You want to see that movie, Oppenheimer? One of the questions that the scientists, this is true, I'm not making this up, wrestled with during the Manhattan Project, and you guys know what the Manhattan Project was? The, the nuclear, World War II nuclear project, right. Um, it dealt with igniting the atmosphere. Did you know that? In the movie Oppenheimer, there's a discussion that Robert Oppenheimer has with Albert Einstein. Okay? And this is how it goes. This is Robert Oppenheimer. He says this. Neutrons, and we all know what neutrons are, they have an atom, smash into nucleus, releasing neutrons, smashing into other nuclei. Criticality, reaching a point of criticality, a point of no return, massive explosive force, but this time the chain reaction doesn't stop. In other words, all these neutrons colliding, it reaches a point of criticality, and it just explodes. And this chain reaction happens, and it doesn't stop. Einstein says it would ignite the atmosphere. Oppenheimer says, if we detonated an atomic device, we might start a chain reaction that destroys the world. Did you know they had to wrestle with that back in 1945? Now, what does that have to do with us and being able to see God and everything? Here's the thing. The world God created which has once been destroyed by water, in the future will be destroyed by fire. And why fire? And here's the point. Everything in this world is combustible, including you. If anyone were to approach God in his unveiled glory, and he's what? Light and fire, they would be ignited by the light and fire of God and consumed. So we experience God now in his veiled form, but one day we will be able to see him in his face in all his light and fire and live. Well, why? Because we will have been glorified, transformed, immortal, and most importantly, pure. There will be nothing in us that can be ignited by the light of God. We will be non-combustible. We're going to be fireproof. <laughs> okay? Only then we'll be given an eternal and expanded vision of God manifest in light. And this is why John wrote this. This is so important. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we're going to be like him. And then we're like him, we will see him just as he is. So our experience of God will be completely different than what it is now. Our experience of life in this, it won't be a water-based existence, will be completely different. When we are like him in our glorified bodies, then we'll be able to see him face to face. And I think our glorified bodies will allow us to experience as much of God's presence and fullness as it can. Not all of it, but far more than what we experience now. In that, folks, and this is the key point, is what makes heaven 
heaven, being with God. The psalmist wrote this, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Boy, make that your life first. Desire nothing on earth but him, because all you have in heaven is him. In August of 1999, uh, my son will like this, the rock band Creed released its second album with arguably its most famous song called Higher. You guys familiar with this group at all? Have heard of it? Creed and Higher and so on? The lead singer, Scott Stapp, you know he grew up in a fundamental Christian home. It may have been in Assemblies of God background. I'm not sure. I can't remember that. But like many people, he strayed from his faith. But still, the lyrics of his songs reflect his conservative Christian upbringing. Here are a few words from their most famous song, Higher, a picture of what heaven is like according to Matt or Scott Stapp. It goes like this. When dreaming, and listen to this. This is so interesting. When dreaming, I'm guided to another world time and time again. At sunrise, I fight to stay asleep because I don't want to leave the comfort of this place. In other words, he's dreaming of heaven, of a wonderful place, and he doesn't want to wake up because when he wakes up, what's he facing? Reality. The reality of this place. He says, because there's a hunger, a longing to escape from the life I live when I'm awake. So let's go there. Let's make our escape. Come on, let's go there. Let's ask, can we stay? In other words, the life here is so bad compared to what he's dreaming of, his dreams of heaven. He wants to escape this world and go to a place that he says is higher. And then there's the chorus. Can you take me higher? And by the way, that's what heaven means, basically, higher. To a place where blind men see. Can you take me higher to a place with golden streets? So you can tell he's obviously had some theology in his upbringing. But when we think about heaven, as Scott Stapp does, we might consider the pearly gates, right? And the streets of gold, how cool that would be. We might consider the reunion that will occur with beloved, redeemed friends or family, right? We might consider being freed from all pain and suffering. Now, let's be honest, isn't that what we think of for the most part when we think of heaven, when we anticipate heaven? But the best, the most glorious reality of heaven is not those things. It is God himself. God is what makes heaven, heaven. Because what you see in these passages in Revelation is a phrase, among men, among men. God is dwelling among men. That is the goal. That is the prize. That is the joy. That is everything. We will be with him. He will dwell among men. And we will be able to see him face to face. And so I want you to think about heaven. Not an easy thing to do. And so when you find yourself preoccupied with this world, you need to slow down 
you need to readjust. You need to take your thoughts higher. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, think of the things above, not of the things of this earth. And make him, while you're on earth, as a stranger and an alien, and this feels like a God-forsaken place, make him your joy and your delight. Let's pray and we'll close with a song. Father, would you take our thoughts higher to you? Make our focus upon you. And to not get dragged down to the things of this earth. Remind us that our citizenship is in heaven. That it is better to depart from this world and to be with Christ. Set our passions, our desires, our emotions aflame with you. And all God's people said, amen. Please stand with me. Let's close the song.